0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Today we're in chapter 9. So we're in the series, we have a few weeks left uh, in the book of Daniel. And the, for the last couple of weeks, starting in, well, actually throughout the book of Daniel, we read about dreams and visions. In the first half of the book, we uh, primarily get dreams and visions that some of the kings had that Daniel interpreted. And then starting in chapter 7 and all the way on through the end, there's a series of four different visions that, that Daniel has. And so chapter 7, um, you know, kind of the imagery of that, uh, there were the, the beasts that came out of the great sea. And then when we were looking at, at chapter 8, uh, there, was, uh, there were two wild animals that kind of dominated the imagery of, of that vision. And in chapter 9, we get to... Uh, we get to a vision that the imagery is is a little bit different. the The vision that Daniel has in this particular chapter is, is really only four or five verses long, and it comes at the end. and It's it's not the same kind of a vision dream sequence like that we're used to seeing so far. It, this is more like a vision uh, epiphany kind of um, moment that Daniel has, where he has been he has been reading. Uh, the words of of Jeremiah uh, places uh, like in Jeremiah chapter 25 when when that prophet who was in Jerusalem and looking around at just the desolate nature of the town and the behavior of the people and he's predicting that they would you know that exile was coming there's going to be consequence to your sin your your Um, turning your back on god you're you're doing everything that he's telling you not to do and after a period of time um you know god's going to remove his hand of protection and and it's not going to go so well for you so you better shape up repent and he talks about a a coming exile and he daniel's reading maybe this i will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness the voices of the bride and bridegroom the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of babylon 70 years so daniel is is reading some of these prophecies of jeremiah where where the where israel's going to go into this like 70 year long exile and it kind of Daniel, where he is in time, he's in the middle of the exile. I mean, this is a guy who's now in his 80s, and he was carted off as part of the exile that Jeremiah had predicted so long ago, and, and we're at about 70 years, probably, or right around there. And so, the question in Daniel's mind is, how long, O oh Lord, will this last? I'm reading the words of your prophet, and, and he said that, that this exile, this time away, was going to be 70 years. Is it, is it about over? Or what's the deal, God? This is what's going through Daniel's mind, and it, he's reading some scripture, and, and it drives him to prayer. Prayer. As he's reading the Word of the Lord and he's asking these sorts of questions, it drives him to his knees in begging the Lord and, and asking for answers. And we'll read, we'll read Daniel's prayer. The first part of chapter 9 is, is primarily Daniel's prayer, and, and we get to his vision towards the end. And I think the best way, or at least in my mind this week as I've been Mulling this material over, uh, I think that it would be more beneficial for us to start at the end of chapter nine and talk about that, and then move back towards the beginning. So I hope you'll follow along with me. I, I want to read um, really the last four verses, and this is the the vision that Daniel has in in chapter nine, and it's a picture. That he's given of things that are yet to come. So if you have your Bible, it's Daniel 9, and I'm gonna start reading in verse 23. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. I could preach a whole message on that phrase. (laughs) As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. We don't pray to the air we pray to a God who listens and pays attention to the things that we have. We, have we, we pray to a God who cares about what's on our hearts and on our minds. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anybody want to take a whack at that? Oh, that's why I'm up here. (laughs) Great. So, in Old Testament... Study; those verses are uh, put in the category of most difficult verses, probably in all of the Bible to understand. Sort of confusing. There's a lot of interesting things in in that particular passage that all point to uh, things for Daniel that are that are yet to come. And what I want to do this morning is I want to I kind of want to go back and forth or, or maybe start off with uh, teaching you a few things. And then and then maybe I'll preach a little bit. Uh, you know, we can think about what, what this means for us uh, today. So, how many of you have ever thought about the end times? Like, what's going to happen? You know, that's a really popular subject. It gets people's interest. Like, oh, what's going to happen at the end? How's it all you know, how's it all going to be brought to completion? You know, we read certain portions of Scripture that, that pique our interest. Uh, there's uh, lots of popular theology out there. You know, a few years back, there's there's all of the Left Behind novels. You ever Did anybody read the Left Behind series? A few of you did. I've never read any of those. Um, I've read, you know, just bits and pieces and, and um, summaries of all of them. And Uh, and then before that, there was like, way back in the day, there was like The Thief in the Night, and and those sorts of books that were written, and and they're all generated out of human interest in what it's going to look like at the end. Now, I'm not convinced that all of the pop theology that's out there is accurate, but I do know that the popular theology that the the things and the pieces that that kind of spill out into our culture that Hollywood kind of pounces on and you know b- blows up. I think w- there's a huge risk for us uh, in talking about this that popular theology has maybe informed how we think more than what scriptural theology. So. We need to look at carefully at this, and so I, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes this morning, um, but there's some things that, that are in Daniel 9 that uh, add to some of the popular theology that I don't think are accurate, and so it's probably appropriate for us to, to talk about. It. Now, you don't have to agree with what I say, um, but I feel like I'm well-researched in this, and so here we go. Um, there's lots of mystery about the end times, and, and there's, there's lots of people who like to uh, take a little bit of Scripture from here and a little bit of Scripture from there and, and kind of piece it together, and, and recently, what was, what was the date? Like September 23rd or 24th, that's when the world was supposed to end, right? Right? Every so often, we get one of these uh, prophecies that come out, like, oh, the world's going to end, so everybody be ready, get prayed up, you know, be right before God, because um, it's going to end. And uh, I think what the balance of Scripture tells us is, is really the question of the end times and when it's going to happen is that we can say I don't know. We don't know. Now, why would we want to say that? I know that's not a very satisfying answer. We like to figure these things out. and They you know, kind of tickle our ears and you know, pique our interests. But the Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, um, when Jesus was asked about it, he said, I don't know. Jesus said that. I think Jesus knows uh, that God is working to bring all things to completion. I think that he knew that he was part of God's plan to bring restoration and redemption to people and uh, forgiveness and show people what it means to love one another, to show people what it means to be merciful and gracious and and so forth. And I I think that he could see God's work in all of that. But when, when he was asked about end times kinds of things... He said, "You know what? It's not. It's not about the day or hour. Nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father knows. That's straight out of Matthew chapter 24." Now, the Church of the Nazarene has a. There's a long statement of of doctrine, but there's a there's a shorter, condensed uh, statement of faith and. Uh, or an agreed-upon statement of the belief, and part of that, on these sorts of issues, it says, we believe that our Lord will return, the dead will be raised, and the final judgment will take place. I think it's important for us to know when we read a statement like that, that one, uh, it affirms a theology, an understanding, Jesus is going to return. It doesn't give us or tell us that we have to believe a specific way of how that's going to happen. It's not a description of events. Our statement affirms uh, the second coming of Jesus, which is a way to say that that God is not going to forever leave the world the way that it is. Um, It also affirms a resurrection, which is really one of the greatest hopes that we have in, in all of scripture. And it also affirms that there will be a judgment, which is a way to say that um, it matters how we live. It matters how we think. There's a, there will be a time when Jesus returns and there will be a judgment, and so we will be held accountable for our actions. Um, the last four verses that we read there in, in Daniel 9 uh, are kind of the key the framework if you will to a lot of the end time theologies that are out there and and so we we get this language of the 77s now what's that what's that all about the imagery from the other dreams and visions were you know beasts and animals and the, the really the image that we get in this particular vision is uh, is the number 770 77s and, and things like that. Um, most scholars, I think all of them uh, that I have read, agree that when we're talking about 77s, if you go back and you look at the Hebrew, it's, it's like 70 weeks would be the Hebrew translation. Um, but it's referring to years, not days, not weeks, not months. We're looking at the sevens representing a, a year. And so if you, if you look at the 77th, it's like 490 years. So the question then is, do we take a passage like this and interpret it literally, or do we take a passage like this and treat it symbolically? Like, what is, you know, what's more of the symbolic meaning? Uh, And so there's a huge debate on these verses. Somebody calls it the dismal swamp of Old Testament theology, (laughs) because it's just confusing. It's hard. And so it's okay if we struggle with this together a little bit this morning. Uh, Scholars, the really smart ones, have been struggling with this for years. And so you may leave here thinking, I never thought about it that way. Uh, and you might get home and you might change your mind, and then next week you might change your mind back again. That's okay. Scholars are even doing that. Um, so many say that because Daniel splits the 77s down into subcategories, if you noticed, he talked about the 77s as a whole, but then he got into a, a, a section where, that we read where there were seven sevens and then 62 sevens and then a final seven. Some people believe that since he goes to the trouble of splitting that out, that we should uh, maybe take it uh, more literally, Uh, that a a precise literal interpretation is is warranted. Uh, And then if you look at other places in the Bible, uh, the Bible's pretty specific about the year of of Jubilee and and the Sabbath rest, and so there's the seven that's, that's built into that. So we, you know, there's there is some basis in, in the Bible that we could take it more literally and try and figure out, okay, that's you know, 49 years, and then 483 years, and then another seven. We get to 490. But it would also seem like we could read it symbolically. Because most places in the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, when we are talking about numbers, primarily seven and ten and seventy and, and the multiples of that, um, are all read from a symbolic perspective. Seven is the number of perfection. You multiply that by ten, and ten is kind of the number of completion. And so he put those two together. Seventy is this number of you know completion and, and perfection, and it symbolizes that in in scripture. Uh, and so, you take that, uh, and then we have seventy sevens now. That's a way of, of amplifying that completion and that perfection. When we go back to the book of Jeremiah, and when he is proclaiming, uh, prophesying that there would be a 70-year exile for the people, uh, that's, a, that's a way of saying that's gonna, you're going to be in exile for a long time. Now, as it worked out, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly 70 years, but it was, it was pretty close. It's a number that, that uh, is representative of what it takes for God to bring something to completion in this particular uh, case. So, we could look at this and we could say that as we read Daniel's prophecy, that it's the entire time that God, that is needed for God's judgment to, to run its course. Um, is that me following? Is that, I know it's a little, little deep. It's a little deeper than than sometimes. But it's in our book, so we better talk about it. Um, you remember when Jesus was with his disciples and Peter came to him one day and he said, Lord, how, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? Now, Peter wasn't asking a numeric question. The, the Jewish law... Uh, It was written in the Jewish law that you forgave somebody three times for an offense. And after that, then you were no longer obligated to forgive that person. And so Peter's like, hey, Jesus, you keep talking about this forgiveness stuff. How many times should I forgive people? Seven? So he took what was in the law, he doubled it, and added one for good measure. And and so seven times? And, And what did Jesus say? No. Seventy times, seven times. Did you think Jesus was being very precise numerically? That that's how many times? Like, you had to keep this long running scorecard. No, I forgave you 489 times. So, um, one more and that's it. No, Jesus wasn't saying that. The point isn't for Peter to forgive a specific number of times, but that Peter is required to forgive as often as is needed. So, there's this... um, I think that, that uh, maybe we should look at this. Well, I'll get to what I think in, in just a minute. Um, but there's a good case for a literal interpretation, and there's a really good case for a symbolic interpretation of these verses. Now, you could read thousands of pages of material on these four specific verses, and each scholar will break down their opinion on... What exactly it means. I'm going to give you four of the viewpoints real quick here. So there's one view that's out there that takes these verses very literally and they begin the 490 year period of time in about 605 B.C. So when Babylon came in and took out Jerusalem and began to control the affairs of, of Judah that's, a, that's when they start you know, the, the clock, if you will, and uh, they take the 490 years, and it's remarkably close to the time of Antiochus, who we talked about two weeks ago as being the little horn, um, the guy who was just anti-Jewish uh, on everything. He came in and set up all the desolations in the temple, and so um, if you take it very literally and you start it when Babylon took over Jerusalem, it's remarkably accurate to the time of Antiochus. There's a second viewpoint that treats this more symbolically in periods of time, and it goes from about, well, there's varying starting points, but it basically starts around the time of Daniel, and it goes all the way through into the first century A.D., so the time of Christ, maybe a little bit beyond Uh, and understands the different periods of that time in more of a symbolic way. So the seven and the 62 and the one are kind of split. And um, Then there's a third viewpoint that also treats these periods of time uh, symbolically, but they take it further out, and it doesn't really end until Christ reappears, when Christ's second coming. And so the the periods run from about Daniel's time and they go all the way, including Christ's first coming. Uh, and then and they extend this time period out way past 490 years, all the way till when Christ will return. And there's a, there's a fourth view, and this is one that the popular theology, uh, like Left Behind and, and other sorts of. Um, things that you might hear or read about out there, this is the one that they really focus in on. And they take it very literally. um, And they begin uh, about the time of the decree that went out from uh, King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah and Ezra to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So, in our Bible, there's a Nehemiah is one who felt called and compelled by God to go back and build the the wall around Jerusalem. And so, there's these waves of exiles who went back to their homeland. And so, they start the clock around then, and and they bring it all the way up to uh, Christ's first coming, and they carry it on through to Christ's second coming. And so, there's a period of time when Jerusalem is rebuilt, the seven sevens, and then the 62 sevens um, takes us all the way up to uh, when Christ enters Jerusalem. We, we celebrate it um, the week before Easter every year at Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's where they believe the 62 uh, sevens end, and now and they have a long gap before the last seven would um, come into play. So that's yet in the future. And so you might have heard, have any you heard of the rapture? Have you heard of that? Everybody? Okay, that's a common terminology that's out there. Part of this last viewpoint and this long gap in between the 69th and the 70th seven is called the church age. And so we're in it. We're in this time in between, if you will. And so they believe that at the end of this time, before the 70th seven begins, that uh, there will be uh, a rapture of the church where all believers will be just whisked away in a flash and everybody who's left will, will stay on earth and will be faced with what we call the great tribulation. Have you heard, heard all this stuff some of you have before? Some of it's new to some of you, that's okay. So, where does this terminology come from? Uh, There's a few texts in the Bible where, where they draw from. One of them is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The section or the pericope there is verses 13 to 18. But specifically in verses 16 and 17, it talks about when Jesus returns. It says, the Lord will come down. So assuming he's up in the sky, in the heavens somewhere, he says the Lord will come down. And at the same time the Lord is coming down, verse 17 says that, that we will be caught up in the air, in the clouds with him, okay? And so the image then is that we're being whisked away to join Jesus in the sky. Well, that, that's I, I see where you could arrive there, but when you look at the Greek text... The word that Paul uses to describe this moment is parousia. And if you do a little bit of research on the word parousia, it's also the word that is used for when conquering kings uh, return back to their home city, to the capital city, or when um, the king goes out and visits cities in his empire. The word parousia means that the, the king is arriving. And the, the process that the people went through is they're, they're excited to see the king. And so they all come out of their city, but they don't stay out of their city. They create this parade back into town. So as a conquering king returns to the capital city, the people are excited, and they, they go out to meet their victorious ruler, and it's a huge party, and they meet him, you know outside the city and they all march back in and so the picture that we that Paul gives us of the second coming of Christ is one where Jesus is coming down like the victorious ruler back into his city to his domain and all of the people go out to meet him but the motion is still back down so that doesn't really sound like a secret rapture of the church where we're all just whisked away and a whole bunch of people are left well, then there's another passage in Matthew that is a bit ominous and a little bit mysterious and scary when you, when you read it. Jesus is teaching on these sorts of things, and, and he says, it will come as a surprise without warning, like in the days of Noah. Like, poof, it'll just, it'll just be here. Matthew 24:40. two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Sounds a little mysterious, doesn't it? Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Does anybody in here tell me which one is taken? Doesn't really say, does it? Doesn't say if it's a believer who is taken or a non believer who is taken. So I don't think that we can really proof-text this and say that that is cause to believe that there's this rapture where all the Christians just, poof, disappear. See, when you read the Bible cover to cover and you study these sorts of things, there's nothing in the Bible that specifically requires a rapture of the church. See, affirming the second coming of Jesus is simply that. We believe that Jesus will return. What it looks like, how he does it, I don't know. Jesus didn't know that. And so if we think that, if we, think that we can piece together bunches of Scripture to come up with some complex plan, um, I, th- I think we're focusing on the wrong things. Our primary focus should be the hope that we have that Jesus will come back one day and do exactly what he said he would do, that he would right all the wrongs, that he would dry all of the tears, all of those sorts of things. That everybody who was uh, wronged in this life will, will have the justice. That people will be held accountable. In, in Revelation, the, the second to last verse in the Bible, Jesus says, I am coming soon. How and when? We don't have to speculate on that. But we can pray the prayer that's in that verse, and it's simply, come Lord Jesus, come. Now, I know most people want to know, what's my opinion? What, what do you think about this passage? So, here, here's what I think. I think that we can re- have a both symbolic and a literal reading of this passage. Because apoc- apocalyptic literature, which this falls in the category of, is extremely um, symbolic in nature. But there's enough in it that when you take the numbers and you multiply them out and you overlay it over what was going on around Daniel's time frame and all the way up through uh, the time of Christ, it is um, remarkably precise. And so, I don't think that it should be lost on us that God knows what He's talking about and that when we read Scripture, we can trust what it says. And so, here's how I have Here's, here's what I think at this moment in time. Uh, I clearly think that this is a messianic prophecy. I believe that what Daniel is talking about here had application to what was going on, but he was also pointing us forward because you know, one of the challenges that we have in any passage of Scripture we read is where do we find Jesus in the text? Where, where is Christ? I mean, the, the, the ultimate... Um, representation of god's redemption for this world is in jesus so where is he in the text and so this one it clearly points forward to jesus i I think it's clear that the 77s was stated first and it's to be treated as a whole unit so if it's years 490 years i I think we're looking at that as as a time period Um, i don't think that there is a gap in it Um, daniel has focused his attention on his question to god is when is this going to end how long O lord must we suffer in exile so this 70 years or so and, and gabriel comes and brings him this answer and he said gabriel says there's another 77s that you ought to be paying attention to uh, you're focusing on your situation right now but god is going to do something even greater than you can even imagine He's going to free you from this captivity, but he's also going to provide a way to atone for sin once and for all. So, I think the seven sevens begins with the decree to Ezra and Nehemiah. So, roughly 460 BC. That, that's okay to, to be a rough estimate here. And that's when the, the Jerusalem began to be rebuilt and so the first seven sevens, about forty nine years, if you you take that forward, that takes you to about four ten b c when Jerusalem was completed in the rebuild and then I think the sixty two sevens begins immediately after that, and it goes all the way to the time of jesus ministry when not when he was born but when when he is, in Luke uh, chapter 4, you can read about his baptism where he goes out to the Jordan River and, and he submits himself to John the Baptist for, for baptism. And in that episode, you know, the, the Spirit of God falls on him and, and you hear the voice of God, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. I think the 62-7 ends in that moment. So right when Jesus is launching his ministry. And then that last seven, or that last seven, or the 70th seven, if you will, I believe, encompasses Jesus' ministry. Because Daniel talks about halfway through that last seven-year period that the anointed one was cut off, which is about when Jesus was crucified and cut off. And yet, in that moment, he confirmed the covenant. Daniel talked about that. And once and for all. And and so I believe that we have that... um, Marking point, partway through Jesus' ministry, and and of course, um, Jesus is the fulfillment of of God's covenant with His people. Uh, Sin is covered and atoned for, and Jesus brings the full, true righteousness. And because of this work, the temple sacrificial system, it's going to cease because it's no longer needed. It's rendered unnecessary with Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. So, that's a lot of information right there. And I was telling a couple people this morning, we could do a whole series on just those four verses. But I think as we gather in this place and we come to a greater and deeper understanding of God's Word, um, you know, we want to know, what, is it, what does it mean for us today? Like that's that's nice, Pastor Dave. But what do I take home? Well, the language and the, the symbolism of the seventy-sevens transcends historical events of its time. It it can be reapplied over and over again to people who are suffering and riddled with sin and in a desolate kind of a place. Um, Daniel was specifically talking about the desolation of Jerusalem. But if you look around today and you kind of, you can pair up the desolate picture of Jerusalem and you can look around the world and you can see a desolate picture of what's going on in, in our own world. And not just in our own world, because sometimes when we gather, we think, oh yeah, it's all, it's all out there, the world is horrible mean, cruel, nasty, sinful, wicked place. And we forget to look in the mirror and see where there's desolation in the church and desolation in the lives of, of Christians. You know, there's certainly, when you look at Christianity, when you look at the church, there's certainly places of life and purity and depth and faithfulness and power and and zeal and And we know and we proclaim that God's not going to give up on us, and He's going to work things out to completion, and He's going to accomplish what He needs to accomplish, what He wants to accomplish, with or without us. But if we're really honest, and we look at much of Christianity, what it's become, it's become uh, a desolation uh, of disobedience, and disunity, and Dishonor to the name of Jesus. So Daniel's vision both warns us about the consequences of this kind of sin and helps us get a glimpse of God's future for times when when we are suffering. So there's there's three things that I pulled out of, of this that that I think we ought to think about. And so if you want to write them down, the first one is. When we begin to understand God's Word, it should drive us to prayer. When we begin to understand God's Word, when we get a deeper picture of the meaning of a text like we read today, it should drive us to prayer. We'll talk about that one probably the most in the next few minutes. The second one is, when we begin to understand God's Word and we are driven to prayer, it should move us to action. It's not just head knowledge that we're looking for. When we begin to understand God's Word and we are driven to prayer, it should move us to action. And the third thing is, when we begin to understand God's Word and live into new life in Christ, you can live in the light of joy. When we begin to understand God's Word, and live into new life in Christ. You can live in the light of joy. So when you, first, when, when you begin to understand God's word, it, it, should, it should drive us to prayer. Daniel was reading words of Jeremiah and the exile that was impending, the consequence of, of Israel's sin, and it drove him to prayer. You see, Jeremiah had this good picture of what was going on in society. He didn't walk around with with blinders on. Jeremiah was one who paid attention to what was going on in society. Jeremiah was one who paid attention to what people were doing, what they were saying, how they were thinking, and how they were treating other people. And he saw that they were were turned away and going the opposite direction that, that God wanted them to go. And he called them out on it. And so Daniel is reading about the consequences of this, and he's matching it up to, okay, well, well, Jeremiah said 70 years. Well, that 70 years is about up, and it drove him to his knees. How long, O Lord, will this go on? In Daniel's prayer, we're going to look at it here. Starting in uh, in verse 4, Daniel, he prays this prayer, and... We've been studying the life of Daniel, and Daniel seems like this upright, God-fearing, righteous individual, right? He's uh, constantly shown as a man who seeks what God would want for him, who when he is faced with adversity... He lives a life of Christian integrity in the midst of, of all that trial and turmoil. And so we would read the book of Daniel and we would surmise from, what, from that, that that Daniel was, was as righteous a person as you could find. And yet, as he prays, he, he doesn't pray for those people he doesn't look at the people of Israel who are in exile and say, yeah, all of those rotten people, God, would you forgive them? No, he, he puts himself in the middle of that group as one of them. Whatever they have done, I am complicit in. I am part of this people. I cannot enjoy the privileges of being part of the Israel and yet avoid the consequences of failed behavior. So Daniel's prayer perspective is one from right in the middle of the people's rebellion and wickedness and sin against God. And so this is, this is, there's so many different parts of his prayer. There, there's, um, there's this one big section that's kind of admission and confession. And so we see that um, he starts off, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5 we have sinned. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, to all the people of the land. We have sinned. We have been rebellious. We have been wicked. He lays it all out there. God, this is all stuff that you can count against us. We have to own it. It's our behavior. We are all guilty. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you." I really love how Daniel goes back and forth between talking about an attribute of God and then showing how the people have gone against that. And he keeps keeps going on here in this first section of Admission uh, and Confession. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything He does. Did you? That's a, a powerful statement. The Lord our God is righteous in everything He does. That I means God is always right. That'd be fair to say, God is always right. I think we get into a lot of trouble when we start to diminish that phrase or believe something different. Now, saying that's, that God is always right is, is a difficult thing for us to connect with because we don't, need, we don't know what it's like to be right all the time. Well, some people, you know... <laughs> We're used to being wrong every once in a while. We don't have it all figured out. And in in moments of just brutal honesty, we'd all say, no, I'm not right all the time. Uh, And we have come to accept things that are less than perfect. I mean, there's a whole slate of football games that are going on right now. How many bad calls do you think have been made by the referees already? Like, you totally missed that call. You are not right about that. We just accept it. Well, it's, you know, it's part of the game. That's how it goes. We'll go home and we'll watch the weather forecast and they're going to tell us, oh, it's going to be sunshiny and bright. And they're wrong. But we accept that because it's hard to predict and there's, you know, room for error in it. Um, You go to a financial advisor and and they kind of give you their best understanding of where the market is right now and so you invest and you, pretty soon your 401k becomes a 201k and you wonder what's going on with 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 this and we we have all of these things that are built in because we just accept that things are going to be less than always right we have this margin of error that we that we account for but God is right all the time he always does what's right for his people doesn't always feel that way but maybe when we set our circumstances and the things that are happening to us and our community our our country our, our world maybe when we set those alongside of god always does what's right and he he always does uh what's right for his people maybe that helps us understand where we fit into this this prayer See, there's a perfect balance that God has between uh, judgment and mercy. Sometimes we experience the consequences of our behavior, and if we keep pushing God to the margins like we're good at doing, if we keep shoving Him out of everything in in our society, in in our life, then we're going to reap the consequences of, of what that means. Israel, for hundreds of years, had pushed God to the margins and said, you know what, we can figure this out without you. We'd rather do this. You know, we'd rather, you know, not have prayer in this or, you know, references to God in that. And, and finally, God just said, okay, I've, I've been patient a long time. And I know we have this covenant. And when God removed his hand of protection over the people and they suffered the consequences of the behavior that they were that they were doing, then it's pretty clear in scripture that the surrounding empires just took turns crisscrossing the Holy Land, carting them off into exile. They they earned their consequence. But we see throughout the pages of scripture that that God knows how to balance his judgment in his mercy, because God is both just and God is loving, and there's a balance between those two, and when we believe that God always is right and that he always does what's right for his people, sometimes we just have to say, yeah, I earned that consequence, and I need to humbly admit and repent and turn around and go the other way and take steps towards his love and his grace and forgiveness that's, that's right there for us to grasp. 14b uh, says, even with all of those consequences that the people were suffering, and yet we have not obeyed, we have not turned. And then Daniel's prayer shifts. And these are the, this is the place in his prayer where he talks about what, what he desires, what he's asking for, his request for deliverance. Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned and we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord... Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear. Lord, act for your sake, my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel appeals to God's compassion and his faithfulness. You know, we need this prayer today, don't we? We need that prayer. And when you think about it, prayer is the most important and the most powerful way that you can actively engage with the affairs of the world. Prayer is the most important and the most powerful thing that you can do to engage with what's going on around you. When you look around at the world and Uh, And you wonder why the world just seems like it's on this fast track to hell when, when you look around and you see Christians and the church ignoring the way of life that God has called us to, ignoring being merciful, ignoring loving other people, ignoring the plight of those who can't find justice for themselves when you see Christians who are watering down the gospel and the church preaching something that's not biblical, when, when you see Christians and the church redefining what truth means according to the word, when you see people of God who are focused more on personal prosperity, we need this prayer. Don't throw your hands up and say you can't do anything. Pray. Don't let your anger explode on those people. Get on your knees and pray. Don't remove yourself from responsibility and figure that you are outside the Christian bubble somewhere looking in on all those other sinful people. No, you're, we're part of it. Pray. This prayer of confession. The second thing was when we begin to understand God's word and we are driven to prayer, it should move you to action. Live a Jesus life. Live a Jesus life so that other people can see what it looks like. Paul talked uh, in Romans chapter 12 he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't give in to the pressure from the culture that's around you. Even if it's the Christian culture that you feel is trying to convince you to go another way that that you don't understand is right in Scripture. Don't conform to that. Be transformed in your mind. Renewed. Live a Jesus life for other people to see. Work against the systems of evil. Work for justice for all the oppressed. Take up the cause of the poor and the powerless. Don't sit back in apathy and be complicit in oppressing other people. Begin to live sacrificially for the benefit of of someone else. Live your life in such a way that, that you're the example for other people to follow. I mean, that's a bold thing to say that you're going to do. Paul says it once or twice in, in his writing. Watch me, he says. That calls a lot of attention to yourself. I think if you, if you say, you know what, I'm going to live my life in such a way that others could follow my example, <laughs> that's going to be a, a big point of accountability for you. There's a lot of weight in making a statement like that. But i got to tell you, when you look around and you see people just fighting over silly little things, somebody's got to lay down first. Somebody has to be the one who says, you know what, it's not worth the fight any longer. It doesn't mean you have to give up on your principle. It just means that you can be the one to be merciful and forgiving and grace-filled. Somebody's got to show other people how... It's done. It might as well be us. It'll move you to action. And third, when we begin to understand God's word and to live into new life in Christ, you can live in the light of joy. There's so much in this world that is cause for us to feel like the enemy is winning. And when when it feels like the enemy is winning, it can drive us into this place where we feel uh, this overwhelming despair. And heaviness but we live right now in between we, we, we as Christians in this moment in time live between two different realities there's this reality that there's still sin and darkness and oppression that is in our world but we also live into the reality that Jesus came and he died on the cross and he took care of that once and for all and sin has already been defeated And so for a while, sin and darkness will seem like it's reigning and ruling in our world. And the risk that we have is we let that overshadow our own existence of victorious people. When we profess a belief and faith in Christ, we are now in Christ as new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. And Jesus having conquered sin and death, is now standing on the winning side. And he says, I am coming back. That's the hope that we hold on to. And so we live between the two realities. One, we're victorious already. Already. But we're not yet to the time when it's been finally fulfilled and when Jesus returns and does everything that he said he would do. So we live in the tension between those two things. But sometimes I think as followers of Christ, we just get caught up in the despair and the desolation. And, and this, we just have a dreary personality when we go out in the world and we look around and we see all the brokenness. We I mean, know I don't know what we're supposed to do. And we feel like we're losing, but we're not. And so we can live in the light of the joy that we can find in Christ. We can live with eager anticipation of the day that Jesus will return. We are people of the light. We can live with joy into that light, for the joy of the Lord will be our strength when we are tempted to despair. people of God said,